0: And if you have your Bibles or access to the scriptures, go ahead and find your way to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1 in a little bit uh, today. We're going to take our time kind of getting there. To kind of give you some context, we are now week 2 of a series we started last week, which is entitled Poisoned, and we're talking about the concept of sin. Um, This series is not about railing on sin and telling you the do's and don'ts of life and how to avoid sin, but more of how do we peel back a layer of What sin is really about, why we sin, kind of getting behind the scenes to understand instead of a list of, okay, these are the things that are right, these are the things that are wrong. What do we what goes into the process of us actually missing the mark that God has for us? Of living out our lives according to agenda that's not what God has for us, but we're we're falling short of what He's purposed for us. How do we get to that point? So last week if you were you weren't here to kind of give you a a catch-up, we were in Genesis chapter three and we talked about kind of the first concept of sin is that we make this attempt to become our own God. And so Adam and Eve did that in the Garden of Eden where the promise was given to them, if they eat of the fruit, that they would be like God. And so, of course, Eve bites on that, Adam does, and then we've been doing that for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That we have bought into this idea that I can somehow become God, I can replace Him in a way in my life that I really don't need Him anymore. But there's a problem with that. Because all of us know that when we try to become our own God, we attempt to kind of take the place of God in our life, we realize there's something wrong with us. We're not perfect like God. We, we're not, we, we don't get it right all the time. And so we try to answer to the brokenness inside of us, but we can't. So instead of trying to be God, we actually move down this kind of progression of sin. We just replace Him instead. We we'll find something else that, that could be kind of a pseudo-God or a counterfeit God, and we put that in his place. And so we say, okay, I'm going to focus my attention on that thing or that person or that experience, and that's going to answer to the needs in my soul. And so we go after other things. And basically what, what, what I'm defining is this thing called idolatry, which is when we take something and we make it, give it the attributes of God in terms of our life. We give it what, what should be to God, we give to that thing or that person or that experience. And then we expect somehow it's going to answer to the needs of our soul. And this is important for us because if we can't be God, then we try to replace God. But we'll talk about even the difficulty in trying to replace God. But this concept of idolatry is something that's not new, but it's something that all of us deal with. It. In fact, it's probably a better definition for modern day sin than actually the term sin itself. Because... The majority of our sins can be tied into this concept of idolatry. And by the way, this is not a surprise to God. God knew this would be an issue for us. And that's why, if you're here last week, we talked about really this week and last week, really the the, kind of the foundation or the genesis of these comes in the first two commandments in Exodus, where God gives gives the Ten Commandments, but the first two deal with how we attempt to be God or we attempt to replace God. So if you weren't here last week, the first commandment is no other gods before me. The second commandment in Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 and 5 is this. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. The first two commandments describe the core of our sin. It's either being God or replacing God. And if we, if, here's the way that God's written this out. If you can get the first two commandments right... The rest are going to be a lot easier. But if you and I get the first two wrong, then we're going to struggle through the rest. So understanding this concept of an idol. And the best kind of def- definition, in fact, I encourage I'd really encourage you to look at it, a really good resource. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. It's about idolatry. It's excellent. I mean, he covers so much of what's going on in our culture. But the way he defines idolatry is so good. He said, it's when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. See, so many times when we think of idolatry, we think of, oh, an idol is an evil thing, and it's very clearly defined, and I can see that it's wrong. No, most of the time in our life, we take a good thing, we take it out of the context, and we put it in the wrong context, and that good thing becomes the ultimate thing, which ultimately, God is the only ultimate thing in our life. But it becomes this ultimate thing, and it can't hold up under the weight of of what God can do in our life. But we look to it as though it's going to. In fact, I think sometimes our life, as we live that way, where I don't think most of us in our lifetime have one or two idols, I think we have 100 or 200 or 500 idols. Because we just keep moving from one to the next to answer to the needs in our soul and realize each one of them can't satisfy. It's almost like I've watched it, I've seen it in periods of my life, and I've watched it in a lot of the lives of a lot of people, where we're almost like when you go back to high school, you remember that guy or that girl that always had to be in a relationship? They couldn't, they were never satisfied to just be by themselves. They always had to look to another person, so they were always in a relationship. I remember there's one guy, and I knew him in middle school and high school, and I can't remember a moment where I knew him where he didn't have a girlfriend, and it wasn't like he dated a girl for like six months or a year. It was like three weeks, a month, a week, two days. You know, And he was really good looking, so girls were attracted to him. So it's like he could could go after any girl he wanted, but obviously whatever was going on in his life, they never satisfied. So he just moved from one to the next to the next, could never find any satisfaction in his life. And I think sometimes when we get stuck in this kind of trap and pattern of idolatry in our life, that's what we do, just keep going from one to the next to the next. And really at its core, before we jump, we'll eventually find our way to Romans chapter 1— What we're talking about when we're talking about idolatry is when we're replacing God, what we're really talking about is we're talking about worship. We're talking about what we give our lives to. So, you know, and you've heard us say this before, worship is not the 30 minutes of song on Sunday morning. That is a portion of worship, but worship is everything that we do. It's all of who we are is worship. And whether you know it or not, you don't even have to know Jesus to be a worshiper because we always, all of us worship something, someone some experience, something in our lives. And so we have to, to understand kind of this replacing God. We have to understand wor- what is worship? What does that look like in our life? And so what I want to do is just touch on three things that help us define what worship is because it helps us to see the idols in our life. So three things, affection, allegiance, admiration. Let me just touch on these three things that we're going to walk through. So what is worship? First thing that worship is, is affection. Affection towards someone or something. And so really what it becomes is What do we love more than God? Who do we love more than God? Who ultimately or what ultimately has our heart in life? What is it that has our affection that really gives us kind of a draw towards somebody or something or an experience in our life? And remember the concept of what an idol is. Most of the time, it's a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing, and then it starts to pull from what God deserves to itself. It becomes this magnetic pull away from God, whether you know it or not. And I remember about a year ago, I had read through K- Jim Keller's book, and I was listening to a podcast, and he was talking about counterfeit gods, and he said something that just it hit me out of the blue. And he, he was talking about his own journey in pastoral ministry and how he had realized one day that he had allowed his wife, who was his partner in ministry and in life, actually to become an idol in his life. And I, when he first said that, I'm like, ha, ah, that never happened to me. And then as he started to kind of unpacking it, I was out exercising. I'm listening on my headphones, and I'm like, as I'm, I'm walking, running, I'm like, oh, wow, I treat Kim that way. I look at Kim that way. I say those things to Kim. I expect that from Kim. And by the time I got back to the house, I had to go confess to Kim and I had to ask for forgiveness. I've made you an idol in my life. Now, I know my wife does walk on water and she is pretty amazing. But I put, when, I, when I put her in a place where I'm looking for this, I this, uh, have this affection for her, this draw for her, that I somehow in my life need from her, Acceptance and approval. And I put that on her. In fact, Tim Keller, he said this, and and this is what got me. He said, so many times after a Sunday morning, I'd be driving home with my wife, and I'll turn to her, and it goes, I don't care any critique I got from anybody on Sunday morning about my message, but I'll ask my wife, what did you think? And she turned to him one day, and she said, how dare you put that on me? He goes, what do you mean? He goes, how, she goes, how dare you put on me that I have to give you the ultimate stamp of approval on your message? She goes, that's too much pressure. And I'm like, oh my, how many times have Kim and I been driving home and I turned to her? What did you think? It's not fair to her. And we do that in our lives, why? Because we want acceptance. We want approval. We want someone to like us. We want that affection, that connection. The problem is, is when it comes off of God into somebody else or something in our life, then what happens is that person becomes a pseudo-God or a counterfeit God or an idol in our lives. And over time, they cannot Bear up under the weight or the pressure of being God because they're not So what happens is we become disappointed with them And we put them in a place of being disadvantaged why because they can't live up to what we need them to be because they're not God So the first thing is affection. That's where our worship is focused second thing is allegiance And and think about this in your life. What do you obey more than God? God ultimately what has your time your energy your resources at the end of the day in your life when you look at your checkbook and you look at your calendar what wins in the end what causes you to push everything else aside so that you can make time space and energy for that thing or that person if it's not god then it's an idol it's a form of worship because why we're giving allegiance And we can say all we want about what is important and what we value in life, but at the end of the day, if you look back over your life and you look at the time that you spent and the money you invested and the mental capacity that you've focused on something, you will know if you're focused on God or on an idol. And we do that in our culture quite a bit, where we find other things that, again, remember, things that can be good, but they've become the ultimate, and they've taken God's place in our life, and they've become the place where we have allegiance to them. In our culture, I've watched, there's, there's a lot of things. I'm not going to go through a long list, but there's a few things that always kind of come to the surface, especially in our Western culture. One of those is comfort. That is an idol. We worship comfort. We don't like to be uncomfortable at any point. We, we make sure that everything that we do gears itself towards our personal comfort. We don't want to ever lack, so when we lack, we borrow more money to make sure that we don't lack. And we keep borrowing, and we keep borrowing, and we keep borrowing. When we go through crisis, it's interesting in the West, particularly in the United States, when we go through crisis, the rest of the majority world looks at us, those who struggle on $2 a day to survive, and they look at our first world problems. You know, when we go through an economic downturn, we think it's the end of the world. No, that means that some of us had to get different jobs. We had to downsize and move out of the big house and move into the small house or maybe start renting. And for for most people in our country, it didn't mean that we stopped eating, It didn't mean that we ended up homeless. For some, it did, and it certainly didn't mean that we died. But the rest of the world looks at us and thinks, really? Why? Because we value comfort, and we don't want to be uncomfortable at all. So our life becomes driven by that. You know, another one is our career, that we get on a track, and we think, okay, I want to be this, and so I go to school, and then I go to graduate school, and I get student debt, student loan debts, right? We know what those are. And then I get in my career, and It's going to start at 40 hours a week, and then it really needs to be 50 hours a week, and really 60 hours a week. But if I'm really going to be, like, the best, then I'm going to have to give, like, all of my time. And so, you know, this is important to me, so I've got to do this, and so it just keeps taking over our life until you realize it doesn't matter how much time you give, how much energy you give, it doesn't answer to what the need is in your life. You know another one we have to be careful of? And this is one particularly in the church. It's under culture, but it's really in the church. Do you know our family can be our idol? It really can be. It's not to say we don't value family. We want to value family, but not as an ultimate thing. How do we do that in our culture? Well, we'd use our family as the excuse of why we can't do things that we know we should be doing. I, I, I've seen it in my life, and I've seen it in the lives of other people. I just can't do it Why? because I have to be with my family. There are seasons in your life where you do need to take care of family, especially if, you neglect, if you've neglected them, but they are not the excuse for you to say no to God. How many times do we use our family? Oh, I've got to be a good parent, yeah, sometimes being a good parent doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be with your child, but you're going to make the right decision in your life. It's hard. I know I'm a parent. And in our culture, we have this, this, this ideal, which is a good parent does everything for their kids and make sure that their kids are well-rounded and have advantages all over the place and are participating in every activity. How I many you know what I'm talking about? In the last two decades, you know what has replaced the dining room table? The minivan. Where do most families eat their dinner? going from ballet practice to soccer practice as you drive through McDonald's, right? That's why the minivan and the SUVs have exploded. What's in vehicles now that used to never be there? TVs. Some actually have refrigerators now built into them. Some of them have uh, microwaves built in them. Next thing you know, you're going to have the bed. You never even have to go home, right? You just <laughs> fold it out and you just sleep while your kid is doesn't, doesn't doing whatever they do. Why? Because ultimately, the family is the end all. doesn't work, does it? No, it doesn't because what you're modeling to your kids is that they're the center of the universe and when they wake up one day and realize they're not they don't know what to do with themselves because somehow they become the idol instead of God being God third thing it's the concept of admiration in other words who do you aspire to be like more more than God you know, what does it mean to really be a disciple? It means to live like Jesus, to look like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to act like Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. But when we have admiration for something other than God, we become that person or that thing, and we strive to reflect that. We strive to have that kind of identity. And if it's not the identity that God has given us in Jesus, then it's, it's an idol, and it's something that we worship and try to become. We try to live up to a certain ideal. And how many know in our country we have that ideal? It's called the american dream and it's not that it is bad it's just a good thing that has become an ultimate thing and the american dream is the dream that people have what it is our right and our privilege what to live somehow a life that was better than those before us to live with more money to to have a better career to advance to to allow allow all of our hopes and dreams to come true right that's kind of the american dream but how many know for many in our country that's not true Because in striving to find happiness in the American dream, we end up losing ourselves. There's a little short uh, commercial that I've seen that's been on TV for a long time. It's from Lending Tree. And every time I see it, I laugh because it's so true. And I want you to take a picture. Because it kind of mocks the American dream. But go ahead, take a look at this real quick. I'm Stanley Johnson. I've got a great family. I've got a four-bedroom house and a great community. Like my car? It's new. I even belong to the local golf club. How do I do it? I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. I can barely pay my finance charges. Somebody help me. Need a smart way to consolidate your debt? At LendingTree.com, banks compete, and you choose the loan that's right for you. When banks compete, you win at LendingTree.com. Okay, anybody relate? Yeah, I love how he's like, somebody help me, and then LendingTree comes to save the day, right? Just get debt more, and then you'll be happy. We all know it doesn't work. But what is that? That's, that's this, this idol that we worship that says, if you live this way or if you do these things, then you'll be happy. I've traveled to a number of different places outside the U.S., and those who have less usually are more happy than we are. They are. If you haven't, those who have gone to Haiti will tell you, the happiest people in the world seem to live in Haiti. They don't live in Simi Valley, sadly. Why? Because they, they're not buying into this kind of concept that we bought into. So again, so go ahead, let's look at at Romans chapter 1, because that understanding that that's the concept of worship, that's what we're dealing with, and we talk about idolatry, then we have to ask the question, who or what are we worshiping? Because that will tell us what our idol is, that will tell us what our replacement for God has become in our lives. So let me read starting in verse 18 of Romans 1 down to verse 25, and then we'll, we'll take some time to talk about it. So Paul writes this, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, in my experience in the church when I read from this passage the majority of people take this passage and they point towards the world and they say yeah look at how bad the world is look at the bad behavior look at how they're worshipping things instead of worshipping God when in reality who was Paul writing Romans to? a group of Christians in Rome as is written to us today a, a group of Christians living in Simi Valley and he's saying listen there's some idols in your life that you got to deal with. And so coming from what Paul says here, three things I think we can kind of summarize. Instead of going through a list of a thousand things and say, okay, here's all the idols that we need to be aware of, I think there's three major categories that we'll kind of, everything will kind of find their way into. Three kind of th- things that we focus on that we worship that become the idols in our life. The first one is this. Look at verse 21, and that is, it's the idol of self. So he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, I think most of us, if not 100% of us, and I think what's true in our culture too, is there is a concept of God. There's a reality of God that's, I think, not only obviously what Paul says, that is seen in creation, but is also imprinted on our soul. And so we know that there's some form of God but we refuse to acknowledge him as God which is what? The ultimate authority in our life. Instead, what do we do? We become foolish and darken our thinking. Why? Because the first God that becomes an idol in our life is ourselves. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? The promise was you will be like God. They weren't pointing. The servant wasn't pointing to any other thing. The servant was pointing directly at them and saying, listen, if you eat of the fruit you won't need God because you'll be him. And that, that feeds something in us. Like, really? And so we have the, this, this idol of self or self-idolatry. In fact, it's what you and I come to this understanding that ultimately there is a God who exists, but his only reason for existing is to benefit me. So therefore, I become the center of all things. My life becomes about me. And so I get so focused on that. There, there's another term to, to describe self-idolatry, and it's, it's the term entitlement what it is and that is that entitlement tells you and I feeds us this lie that we we believe and that's this that we live our life as with this mantra I deserve and then you fill in the blank I deserve this I deserve that I have I, I deserve these things and we come up with some kind of justification to say why I deserve this Because I live in this country, because I've worked really hard, because I'm born into this family. And we go down the list. I deserve this. We use another term in our country. Instead of saying deserve, we say what? I have the right to. Have you watched TV or internet or listened to anything the last couple days? How many times have we heard the word, I have the right? The right to this, the right to that. What is that saying? I deserve this because whether we say it or not we believe it i am the center of the universe that's what it is and when that becomes something that just becomes kind of accepted then it's very easy to bind to that you know what's interesting you know what the greatest threat to entitlement is grace see entitlement says i deserve and let me give you 10 reasons why i deserve this grace comes along and says you don't deserve but you're blessed anyway. Grace. That's why we struggle with grace. Because God says to us, you can't earn my favor. I choose to love you. I choose to bless you. I choose to heal you. I choose to bring you into my family, not because you've done anything, but because I've chosen to do it for you. So you deserve nothing. So it's a gift of grace. And We're like, no, I want to somehow justify myself. I want to say I deserve. Because then we can look around and say, I'm more deserving than that person. But grace levels the playing field so that we all are on level ground. So, but if we understand this, that means that what's fighting in, in, inside of us, what's even at war within our own country right now, is that, that what's become an idol is ourself. We think that we deserve all these things and we deserve nothing. That's the beauty of grace. Because when you receive something, it's truly a gift. You did nothing for it. And that's the joy of grace, is that I didn't have to earn this. In fact, I deserve the opposite of this. And God still gives it to me in my life. Then there's a second thing. Second thing is something. So self, we worship something. So it's not a person or it's not ourselves, it's something else. Listen to Paul, what Paul writes in verse 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what does their foolishness look like? And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul is saying, listen, you couldn't be God because you're not God, but you're trying to replace him with something else. And so you come up with, and this is the the crazy thing about idols. I think a lot of times we pick our idols because we want to attribute to them characteristics of God so they'll answer to the needs of our life. That's what they used to do in the Old Testament. When they picked an image, like when, when Moses went up on the mountain to get the law and he comes down, what's Israel doing? What are God's people doing? They're worshiping the golden calf. What is a golden calf? Could it move? No, it was just golden. It, was, had, it had monetary value, but they could attribute to that calf anything they wanted it to be. So that it would somehow reflect back on them and answer to the needs of their soul. And we still do that in our own lives is that we look for things that will somehow answer to what we think we need in our soul. The problem is when we keep going back to that idol and it doesn't, doesn't deliver, we can't figure out what the problem is. It's because it's an idol and it's not God and it can't hold up the weight. And so many times it, it may not be ourselves and it's not somebody else, but it's something in our life. Ta- it could be money or it could be, it could be career. It could be family. It could be sexual encounters. It could be all these things that we keep going back to. In our culture right now, I think one of the the things that has placed a premium on our culture, particularly amongst amongst younger generation, is fame. Fame is a huge idol in our culture. That's why in, in, in our culture, for a lot of young people, it doesn't matter if it's for good or for bad as long as I'm famous. That's why it really, it isn't about what I do, it's about how I do it in a way that gets me on social media that gets people talking about me and looking at me and getting more YouTube v- views, or more followers on Twitter, or more friends on Facebook, or whatever it might be. Why? Because then you everybody I know, I, I, I don't spend a lot of time on social media, but the first thing people do when you look at a video from YouTube is you check how many views it is, right? How many know? that's true? Because you want to see if this is popular, and it gets moved to the top. Why? Because we want fame. That's, a, that's an idol. And so we go after this something in our life. In fact, I was watching a documentary about a week and a half ago. I love to watch documentaries on ESPN about kind of sports history. So they were talking about the 1985 Chicago Bears, which is arguably one of the best professional football teams of all time. They lost one game, one game. But they were so dominant, and the way way they played the game was amazing. But they they were interviewing these guys who've now played, you know, like 30 years ago or whatever. It's crazy. I mean, these guys are older now, and they've all, you can see just the the destruction that the game of football has wreaked on their bodies. I mean, none of them can can walk normally. Some of them have to use crutches or a wheelchair or a walker. Um, They've all been just decimated by this game, but then you get them talking about the 85 Bears, and they're like so excited. And so in in the interview of each one of them, the reporter kept asking the same question. Looking, I mean, these guys are broken down. In fact, Jim McMahon, who was the quarterback for the Bears, he has severe brain trauma. In fact, a, a doctor has to manipulate his spine every couple of months to get fluid to drain off of his brain so that he can function. And so th- in the interview of all these guys, they had asked the question, knowing what you know today and knowing that your bodies are broken down and probably you've probably limited your lifespan, they asked this question, would you do it again? Dave Hampton, who's uh, on the defense for, for uh, the Bears, this is what he said. He said, yeah, he goes, you know, he goes, and this guy could barely walk. He's like, I would do it all again. He goes, because you don't understand. When you come out of that tunnel at Soldier Field, and thousands of people are screaming your name, and you're on that field, and everyone is behind you, and everyone's there in that moment. He goes, that's the only time that I actually felt alive. So now 30 years removed, he's still going back to a moment in time because that thing is an idol in his life. His fame on that field was the only thing that made him feel alive. There's no way humanly possible he can ever go back there because he can't play football anymore. And so he lives in this constant shadow of what was in his past because that's the idol that answered to what he thought he needed in his soul. But it didn't sustain him. And in our lives, you and I have to think about what is it in our life that we live in or we go after and think, if I could just have that experience, I could just stay in that moment, then it would make me happy. The problem is time doesn't stand still. Time just keeps moving on and moving forward, and we get stuck in the past. And then there's finally the final thing, and this one's quite obvious, but who or what do we worship is that we worship someone else, someone other than God. And Paul says this in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, Paul's talking about, obviously, sexual impurity in this way, but what he's saying is that that God basically said, okay, you've tried to be your own God, didn't work for you, so now you're replacing me with other gods, pseudo-gods, and now I'm going to basically let you do what you want to do. And that is, what is the outcome of humanity? Is that we choose to use each other as our idols, and the idol becomes a means to our end. The idol is not something that we worship because it has some value in and of itself. We worship it because it creates a means to our own end, which is our own satisfaction, our own gratification in life. So we turn to each other. And we use each other as idols in our life to answer to something inside of us. And that always leads to disappointment because there is no human being that ever walked a planet other than Jesus himself that can stand up under the weight of what it means to be God. Nobody can. Nobody can. Although we will put people on a pedestal and we'll try to make them the end all, we'll make them the ultimate thing and and they'll make us happy, eventually they will disappoint you. One of the things that Tim Keller said in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he said, listen, he said, when you make a person into an idol and they die before you do and you attend their funeral and you're standing beside their coffin as they lay there, he said, your God can't do anything to help you because it's laying dead in front of you. He said, the only God that can help you is the God who is alive. And when we put that on people, we are disappointed and we're unfair to them because they can't live up to that weight. They can't become the end all for our lives. So think about this. How do you know that somebody's become an idol in your life? How do you worship them? Ask this question. Who can you not live without in your life? When you think about a particular person and you think what your life would look like apart from them, you think, I don't have a future. I don't know if I would have the will to live. Just think about this we, we lose if you These are some categories it, We lose our will to live When a boyfriend or a girlfriend Breaks up with us We've just identified an idol If we lose our will to live If our spouse divorces us We've just discovered an idol If we lose our will to live When a loved one passes away We've just discovered an idol Loss is painful It's difficult but we can't allow people to be the ultimate thing when God is the ultimate thing. How about this one? When we, we lose our faith in a Christian leader who falls, we've just uncovered an idol in our life. People will lose their faith over the failure of a leader because they realize for the first time their faith was in the leader and not in Jesus. We lose our reputation when our child doesn't turn out to be the person that we had hoped for. Do you know that we can treat our kids like idols? and we live vicariously through them and they're gonna cr- right all the wrongs of our upbringing and they're gonna be more successful than us and we push and we push and we push and when they wanna be something different than us we feel like our life is falling apart because they're not what we want them to be and then it looks bad on us as parents. I know this way. I know. I have two kids. I know what it is. I want my kids to be my kids. They're not gonna be that's why Jordan's name is Jordan and not John. It's intentional. Because Jordan is going to be Jordan. He's not going to be his dad. And we have to realize that we can do that as our kids. Or how about this? We lose our hope when our political leader loses an election. I'm not going to step on any toes, and I'll be careful of this, but I just want us to to understand what our country is walking through and the importance of it. We have put, and I'm talking about the church, we have put our faith in politics, and it's not working. It's not working at all. We haven't put our faith in Jesus. We have put our faith in a political leader and a political party and we're going to be disappointed over and over and over and over again. Politics have become an idol in our country. It's crazy. It's crazy to watch what's happened in the last couple days to think about how we, how we look at the world. That somehow this political system, this agenda is going to answer to all the needs of my life. And if the right person is in the White House, then I'm going to have a wonderful life. It's impossible. Even the most popular candidate who has the highest approval rating, who everybody likes, can never, ever bring happiness to your life. Can't. Because that person's not God. Every president that we've ever had has never been God, and they never will be. And this is important for us because, I mentioned this earlier, we always want to set up a political power so that we feel like we're on the winning team. We always do that. It's happened throughout history. And that's why in the Old Testament, you remember, God set himself up as the king of all, over all. He was the leader of Israel. He gave them prophets, but the prophets only spoke the word of God to his people. He was the leader. And what did they say to God? We want a king. We need a king. You don't get the way it works here down on earth here. We need a king, and this is exactly what they said, so we can be just like everyone else. So what did God do? He gave them kings. If you don't know about the kings of Israel, read through 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, you will realize, oh, that was a bad move. Not God's bad, Israel's bad. You know we still do that today give us a king give us a president by the way the presidency was never supposed to have the authority it has right now but but it's the end all no it's not i am so grateful when i look at the political system that jesus is the lord over all and donald trump is not and hillary clinton is not and barack obama is not and george bush is not and bill clinton's not and george bush before him is not and ronald reagan is not how far back do we have to go are you getting the point? And this is our time as the church to show people there is a better way. There is a better way than political arguments and rhetoric and ideology. There's the way of Jesus that surpasses everything the world has to offer. And if the church is the church in this day and age, you know what we will find? People will say, you know what? I'm not gonna fight the battle of liberalism and the battle of conservatism, I'm going to join the movement of Jesus and realize there's a better way. See, because when, what, what political systems cannot do is they can never transform the human soul. They can't. Only God can do that. And that's our only hope. Because I've watched the news and I've watched people argue over their ideology and nobody changes sides. They just get more emboldened in their own opinions of how right they are. And they just get further and further and further apart. And then Jesus comes along and says, No. Even when his disciples said, Hey, come establish the kingdom of Israel, he's like, No, that's not what I came for. I came for the kingdom of God, which is far greater than anything the world can offer. So, understanding this reality of either becoming God, replacing God, then we know that we can define sin this way it is the worship of self, something, or someone other than God in our lives. That's the core of sin. So what I'm going to do, just we're going to conclude here with some worship, but I want to ask you if you would simply just close your eyes and I do this periodically and I'm doing that because I'd like you, it's it's not to be cool so the worship team can have time to transition up here. People think, oh, that's what it is. It's because I want you to focus in on some things I, I think the Lord wants us to hear about what he's saying over the last couple weeks. Just as a point of reflection, I want your focus on him, not necessarily up here. So when you begin to think about Looking at sin the way that we've looked at sin the last couple weeks. So understanding that in each one of us, there's this attempt to become God. And that means when we are attempting to become God, what we're striving after in our lives is really simple. We talked about it last week, but just as we review, think about this. I'm striving for control. That I can be as powerful as God in my life. I can control. The circumstances to make my life what it's supposed to be. So we're striving for that. That's striving to be God. Or, or we strive for this sense of independence that I no longer need God because I have everything that I need and I can get it my own way on my own. Or maybe we think we go for the knowledge that somehow I will know better than God in my life. That God may have a plan but I've got a better one. And if, if one of those three things you know has become something that's been embedded into your, your mind and your heart, then you know that you've been striving to be something that you were never created to be and can never be. And what is the greatest relief is you never have to be. You don't have to be God. You can actually let God be God. Or maybe, maybe today you've, found substitutes, counterfeits, replacements for God in your life. And you know that in each one of those, it might have worked for a little while, it might have brought momentary satisfaction in your life, but you know over time that the idol just wears out. So you gotta move to the next one. And then you gotta move to the next one. So you move from yourself to something, to someone And then you move back to self again and you just keep repeating the cycle over and over and over again. God wants you to know that he is the one that can break the cycle because what we can learn from what Paul said is that we all know deep down inside there is a God and the reality is we are not him and therefore he asks us, he calls us to acknowledge him as God. So this morning as we worship we're going to ask you if you would be willing to lay down your god complex or your idols because you may ask this question of yourself as you scan through your life right now ask this what are the good things that may have moved into the ultimate thing in my life what good things in my life that i have enjoyed that have been good now have if i look at them and if i'm honest i compare them to the value i place on god and what he's up to in my life and in my family, and in my city, and my world, and around everything that's going on, have I taken that really good thing, and now somehow they just have surpassed God in my life? Because I desire their affection more. I give them more allegiance. I admire them more than I admire God. If, if, if you see that, then what God is asking you and I to do today is to lay down the need to be God. as has to be down the idols that have replaced him Lord Jesus there is truly no one like you and in your great love and your great mercy you have watched mankind strive to be our own God and then to replace you and you are amazing because if it was one of us in your place we would have given up a long time ago but you never give up on us so today Jesus you call us back again to allow you to be the God, the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings, the authority over all authority, that there is no one greater than you, there is no rival, there is no equal. So Lord, today I pray that you would encounter us in this moment and remind us of the freedom to move beyond the sin of our desire to be God or to replace you. And in that, we can find freedom. We can find forgiveness. We can find life. We can find satisfaction as you call us. So Lord, let us die to ourselves so that we can live life with you as the God who is all-deserving, who is the God who loves us deeply, and who is the God that gives us grace.